to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 25 to 33 this morning as we make our way through Ephesians. Just one brief announcement. Uh, One of the real encouragements for me is since we made our announcement, um, we are baptizing a lot of people and a lot of people are wanting to join. And, and what that, um, that could be humbling, but actually it's encouraging. It just reminds us that Jesus is the head of this church. And uh, he is continuing to work and will continue to work here at Fisherville. His hand is on this church. But if you want to join our church, uh, we require a new members class. If you could uh, call our secretary, Liz, and we, we will be setting up a, a class in the near future. So be praying about that if the Lord is leading you to commit to Fisherville. If you're a Christian, one thing you do know, God has called you to immersion in a, in a local body where your Christian life will be lived out. So prayerfully, that will be Fisherville. If you would look with me in Ephesians 5, and we'll start in verse 22. We looked at this last week, but for context. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, we have been singing about that wondrous mystery, the mystery that is fulfilled in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ but a mystery that is symbolized in marriage. We pray that we could behold that mystery today through the word that is preached. Give us ears to hear, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In an essay called First and Second Things, C.S. Lewis points us to a very important principle that I believe every Christian needs to heed, consider, and embrace. And here's what he says. Every preference of a small good to a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. You can't get second things 
by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. So given our current passage, a husband and wife who puts their own happiness or personal fulfillment first will end up chronically dissatisfied with their lives and with marriage itself. Why? Because happiness and personal fulfillment in marriage is not the first thing. It's the second thing. It's a byproduct. It's not the end goal. So if you mistake a second thing for a first thing, you'll lose not only the first thing, Lewis is telling us, you will lose the second thing as well. But if a husband and wife put the first thing first in marriage, and what is the first thing? That marriage is designed to reflect, to symbolize that mystery. The mystery of the fulfillment of the ages through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, marriage is designed to symbolize the relationship that Christ has with his purchased bride, the church. If you put that first in your marriage, then you get the second things thrown in. That's what Lewis is telling us. Of course, this gospel takes both a husband and a wife. And we have a redefinition of marriage going on in our culture, but we don't have the autonomy to redefine marriage because God invented marriage. It takes a husband, it takes a wife. And last week we saw the, call, the, the wife's call to submission. That's the wife's call in marriage. But the really significant thing about this text isn't the wife's call to submission. That wouldn't have surprised anybody in the first century. What is really surprising, the real shock is the much longer command to the husbands, to sacrificial love. In fact, Paul spends 40 words devoted to the wives. He spends 115 words in this passage looking at the husbands. And that brings us to the first part of this. We'll just kind of review last week. The role of the husband, which is headship. Look with me in verse 22. We won't rehash that passage because we looked at it in detail last week. But he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his himself, its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so if the word that characterizes the wife's responsibility is the word submission, the word that characterizes the husband's responsibility, here in this text, and we don't allow the culture to define what we uh, read in the text, we allow the text, right, to define the culture. The word that is used for the husband's responsibility in this passage is headship. Now let's begin with the obvious. The word headship has to mean something. Uh, it can't mean nothing. Our Jesus headship over the church would mean nothing. And so headship has to mean something. And, and Paul doesn't command the husbands to be head over their wives. You note that. They are the head over their wives. Now, the husband can be a poor head or he can be a, a good head. 
but ahead the husband will be. Now, if he ignores this and he abdicates his responsibility as, as head, he'll lead poorly. But no matter what he does in the home, he is the head of the home. And hence the word, this comprehensive word, husband. It's a very important word. A lot of times we, we fail to reflect on the comprehensive nature of that word. Husbandry is the careful, you could say stewardship, management of resources. It could be over a, cro a crop. It could be over, over a farm. In this particular case, it's over a wife and over a family. The, the husband has been called, commanded by God to see to it that his garden, in this case the family, bears fruit, which means it must be managed, it must be stewarded, it must be tilled well. If someone wants a garden full of weeds, and there are a lot of marriages that way, all the husband has to do is abdicate his responsibility. All he has to do is be passive. Conversely, a heavy-handed guy, a heavy-handed man, he goes into his garden and he tramples that garden. And we certainly see those kinds of men in the church. They're very possessive. They're very controlling. Their wife has no voice. They're beat down. But more often than not, we see the passive man in the church, a man who does not lead his wife spiritually. That's an earmark of the curse that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.16 where it says that you will rule over your wife. And in one way we rule over our wives is to abdicate our spiritual leadership. It rules them in a negative way. So whether you like it or not, the Apostle Paul says here, the doctrine of headship is critical for marriage. Now, he's going to get into the rest of this text and explain why. I want you to notice in verse 25, headship, he says, is for the purpose of the wife's holiness. Look with me in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, Paul is going to use five imperatives, that is, five commands in verse 25, verses 25 to 27, to show us Jesus' goal for his bride. And so Paul is, is teaching us here a little bit about the doctrine of the church and Christ's purposes for the church. And he is saying we learned that in part through godly marriages. So he's going to use five commands here. And the first two you see here in verse 25. Look with me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And notice, and gave himself up for her. And so, husbands are to love as Christ love. And how did Christ's love express itself? He gave himself up for his bride. Of course, we know there's something one of a kind, unique, about Jesus giving himself up for his bride. It, it's displayed in the baptismal waters. Jesus Christ came and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He gave himself up for us as a substitute so that we would not receive the judgment that we deserve. 
He came and fulfilled righteousness, all righteousness, in giving himself up for us. And then he went to the cross and, and he took the judgment that we deserve. And, and Paul says that is the pattern of love that husbands are to display to their wives. It's kind of like what John said in 1 John 4 when he says this is love. Now I want you to note the scripture never gives us a definition of love. I love definitions. I have the American Heritage Dictionary in my, in my office and I look in that book often. But the Bible never gives us a definition of love. What it gives us is an event. John says, this is love. Not that you love God, but he loved you and gave himself as a propitiation for your sins. Therefore, beloved, if God has so loved you in this way, so you ought to love one another. And, and Paul says this should be uniquely expressed by the husband's love for his wife. He gives himself up for her benefit. In other words, headship is not liberty and freedom for the husbands to do what they like in the home. The crown given to the head in this case is the crown of thorns. What Paul is saying, and as C.S. Lewis warned us so aptly, the real danger isn't that husbands will grasp this crown too eagerly. It's that they will... Let their wives wear that crown instead. And so at every stage of the marriage, the husband who is heeding these words from Paul is taking a crucifixion audit on the way he's acting, the way he is treating his wife, and the way he perceives things. In other words, he, he gauges he, uh, the way he treats her by the way that Jesus treated his bride when he gave himself up for his bride. Now, when the Bible gives a specific command to husbands as husbands and, and does the same for wives, the stress is different. I want you to just, we're going to jump real quickly to verse 33 and then we'll come back to our present text. Verse 33 says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. So that's the sec second time we see this. It's actually the third time in the passage. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. This command seems to be addressing our respective general weaknesses. And so I, th think, I think the reason that husbands are called to love their wives here and wives aren't called to love their husbands, though you do see that in Titus 2, is that wives are generally naturally capable of loving their husbands and sacrificing for them, while at the same time believing that he's a jerk. Wives are naturally capable of that in a general way. That's why Paul says the general requirement for the wife is to respect her husband. And so uh, a wife may go to her friends and, and give them an earful about the wife or the husband that, uh, that she does not respect. And then she goes home and she cooks and cleans for him and the family. Why? Because she loves her husband, but she doesn't necessarily respect him. There's another reason for these commands as well. Men need respect in a unique way, and women need love in a unique way, but not necessarily for the reasons that the husband and wives may think. 
And that brings us to verse 26. I want you to notice. He says, we take, love the church or love our wives as Christ loved the church that he might sanctify her. That's the third verb or third command. There's five commands in the text. This is the third command. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So who is he here? Well, it's certainly Christ because Christ is the one who saves us and sanctifies us. But the husband plays an instrumental role in this as well. In other words, the Lord uses means. Salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. We know that. The scripture teaches that. But scripture also teaches us that the Lord uses means of grace. Means by which he, di- he dispenses his grace and saves his people. In this particular case, wives are sanctified, conformed to Christ through the means of their husbands loving them as Christ loved the church. Again, notice he says that he might sanctify her, third command, or the third verb, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. In other words, the word plays a central role in loving your wives as Christ loved the church because the word played a central role in Christ loving us. How did you come to saving faith? Uh, We heard these four testimonies this morning. It did not come apart from the word of God. It did not come apart from the gospel in the word of God. It did not come apart from the knowledge that they are a sinner, God is holy, we deserve judgment, and God made provision for our sin in his son Jesus Christ. So they were washed by the word. And Paul is saying here, that one of the ways we display this kind of love for our wives is through the Word of God. A Bible that is closed in the home will tell you that husband is not loving his wife as Christ loved the church. You cannot have a closed Bible in the home and expect that your wife is going to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that she will be conformed to Christ. You can't expect that. It won't happen. So that he might, notice, present the church. So there's this goal. And this is to be the husband's goal. The husband's ultimate goal, the first thing, is not his happiness. The first thing is not his personal fulfillment. His his first goal is to present the church, or in his case, his bride, his wife, in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So we saw the the first two of those five verbs that Paul used to show the unfolding stages of Jesus' commitment and goal for his bride. And the last we see here, it's remarkable that he might sanctify, cleanse, that he might present. In other words, Paul wants... New creation for us. And that's what Ephesians has been about. The whole purpose of Ephesians is to display the mystery revealed in Jesus Christ to sum up all things in heaven and on earth 
in Jesus Christ. He's making all things new. And one of the means by which he does this is through Christian marriages. Now, marriages serve as a sign of Christ's victory because, indeed, he's already triumphed, hasn't he? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians chapter 1. So marriage, Christian marriage, serves as a sign that Jesus has been exalted. And yet we know the recognition of his exaltation is not yet universal. And so marriage serves not only as a sign, it serves as a means towards that end. That's the first thing of marriage. If you think the first thing of marriage is your happiness, you're going to lose it all. That's what Lewis has taught us. And so he wants new creation. When, when two Christians understand that they stand on that wedding day before the minister all garbed out, they're not playing dress. They're not playing dress up. What they're saying is that someday they're not going to stand before the minister. They're going to stand before the Lord and they're going to turn to each other without spot and blemish. That's what Paul is saying. And this is gloriously significant when you consider the fact that as you get into marriage, and it really does require marriage, dating is, is almost like used car sales. You're just, you're just putting your best foot forward. You don't know your future mate in the dating years. It takes marriage. And once you get married, what you realize is that your, your spouse is not glorified yet. And, and Heather, I told Heather, don't say amen uh, when I made that point. <laughs> and, and so you will begin to see things in your marriage that you did not see in the courting years. Um, you may be an uptight person with, with a tendency uh, towards excessive worry or being excessively anxious. Uh, you might be a, a prideful person with a tendency towards being very selfish or having a high opinion on every matter. You may be a rigid person with a tendency towards being demanding or, or pouty if you don't get your way. You, you may be a harsh person that people tend to respect more than they like. You, you may be an undisciplined person with a tendency to be undependable or disorganized. You may be an oblivious person who just seems to be unaware of the way you come across to other people. You may be a perfectionist with a tendency to be judgmental are critical of other people. You may be an impatient, irritable person with a tendency to hold grudges or to lose your temper. You may be a person who wants far too much to be liked, and so you, you twist the truth, you exaggerate, you fib, you even lie, you, you press too much to be liked. And your parents, your siblings... Your roommates, your friends have seen all of these tendencies in, in, in you. Not to the degree that your spouse has, though. 
And they may have even said some things to you about it, but they let it go after a while because it was hurting your relationship with them. But the reason they were able to let it go is that that, those issues did not pose the problem for them that it will pose for your spouse. If you bring, and you will, the old self, the remnants of the old self, Adam, into your marriage, those things will get exposed. And here's what Paul is saying to every Christian couple. He is saying, that's not an obstacle in your marriage. It's God's strategy. It's God's strategy. These things have to get exposed. Because that which is not known about ourselves cannot be mourned over. And those things that aren't mourned over will not be repented of. If we don't know these things about ourselves, we will not flee to God in Christ in desperation. God is making all things new and he is using your spouse to bring that about. And so, instead of seeing it as an obstacle, see it as God's strategy. God is doing a work of sanctification. He's doing a work of cleansing and maturing and conforming to Christ in your marriage. And so each spouse, this is the first thing of marriage, all right? It's not your happiness. Each spouse should give himself or herself to be a vehicle for that work of grace and envision the day when you will stand before the Lord in full splendor, having been fully glorified by the word of Christ through the agency and the instrumentality of your spouse. That brings us to verse 28, headship for the husband's benefit. Not just for the wife's benefit, it's for the husband's benefit. Notice what we in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives, that's the second time they're commanded to love, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so this is the golden rule applied to marriage. That's what Paul is saying here. It's generally true, and I'm sure there are exceptions in the world, that we naturally love ourselves. And Paul says here, note in marriage that you have become one. The church has become one, and in Christian marriage, a husband and a wife have become one. What is God doing by the church and marriage? He is demonstrating that he is, he is restoring and reconciling the fractured things. And so a a marriage that is one, not just positionally but practically, is communicating that Jesus Christ indeed has achieved reconciliation. And so know that in marriage you have become one. And so when you live for your private pleasure at the expense of your spouse, you are destroying not only yourself, but you're destroying your own joy. But if you live in devotion to the holy joy and the sanctification of your spouse, Paul says you'll also be living for your own joy and making a marriage after the image of Christ and his bride. And this text commands us to do just that because Jesus did just that. Notice in verse 29, 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes. That's what you do for yourself because we naturally love ourselves. Now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that's also our problem. We're enslaved to self-love. Christ died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, he says in 2 Corinthians 5. But there is a, there's a natural, healthy way of loving yourself as well. You nourish and cherish yourself, he says. So no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Again, notice the church here is in union with Christ. The church is the body to the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, because we are members of his body. Again, as I've said before, unity in the church displays that Christ has emerged victorious. That's why division in a church bears false witness to an accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are one. We are unified. We are Christ's body. And Christ loved his body. And we are to display that by our unity not only in the church, but in our marriage. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is leaving and cleaving, you've heard. And the two shall become one flesh. Now, he's quoting Genesis 2.24. As I've said, Genesis 2.24 is the paradigm for marriage for the rest of history, for the rest of redemptive history. So when we were looking at Samuel and we saw the, the polygamy taking place uh, in, with the kings and with David, uh, what we said there was that that was a, a sinful anomaly. It was not the way God designed things to be. You were to judge and gauge every marriage through the lens of Ju Genesis 2.24. And that's what he's quoting right here. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You, you're going to see that, in fact, that passage, that verse, five times in the Bible. One time in Genesis 2.24, and then you see it four times in the New Testament. But do you know what it means? What it means is that when God established the paradigm in the garden, he didn't put a parent and a child in the garden. He put a husband and a wife in the garden. And that means, and this is so important for all of us who have children who are busy, for all of us who have children that take up a lot of our time, marriage supersedes all other relationships. Greatest way you can serve your children, and we saw this last week, didn't we, on Mother's Day, is with a godly marriage. In fact, right after this passage, he's going to direct his attention to children. And so he's got the family on his mind. But he put a husband and wife in the garden, and that establishes that the husband-wife relationship supersedes all other human relationships. Why? Because it reveals the mystery of the relationship that Christ has with his church. You know what else it means? Verse 32 here, marriage is not about us. Most marriage counseling, let me retract that, all marriage counseling I do, one of the problems in the marriage 
is we've made it about us. That's why we see divorce. That's why we see adultery. We've made it. That's why we see pornography in many marriages. We've made it about us. And Paul says the first thing of marriage is found right here in verse 32. It reveals, it reflects, it symbolizes a mystery. A mystery that finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage is about Christ and the church. It supersedes all other purposes and goals. Every marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Even non-Christian marriages. Now, it can serve as a bad picture, but it's going to be a picture. And because of sin, because of rebellion, many of these pictures are slanderous lies. They bear false witness about Jesus. And so when a man is harsh with his wife, he is saying that Jesus is harsh with his bride, the church. When a man forsakes his wife, he is saying, this is what Jesus does with his church. When a man commits adultery on his wife, he is saying, Jesus cannot be trusted. But herein lies the resource for our being able to live as biblical husbands, knowing the purpose of the church and living in light of Christ's sacrifice for the church. This mystery is how Jesus Christ, through his finished work of coming, living, as we have said much this morning, as our substitute, fulfilling righteousness because we don't, worshiping in spirit and truth because we don't, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves because we don't, and then this righteous, obedient one taking the cross that we deserve and how marriage is to illustrate that. Paul says that is the goal. That is the purpose of marriage. And until you get that as the first thing in your marriage, just expect to be miserable. Perhaps the best way to conclude is by dispelling the myths about biblical headship because, again, as we saw last week when we talked about submission, I think what the culture critiques oftentimes is a straw man understanding of submission, not a biblical understanding of submission, and the same way goes with, with headship. I've been largely influenced here by Sam Storms and others but I think these are very important points. First of all, husbands are never commanded to rule their wives. You note that. They're commanded to love them. In fact, ruling your wife is the curse that fell on Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.16. Men are not called to rule their wives. They're called to love them. And if you don't love your wife, you will end up ruling her in a negative way. The Bible never says husbands demand submission from your wives. The Bible never says that. It says love your wives in a self-sacrificing way 
And I, I might even say, by implication, love them into submission. I don't think any woman has a problem with submitting to her husband who's loving him, her as Christ loved the church. Second, headship, headship is never portrayed in Scripture as a means of self-satisfaction or exaltation. Headship is always other-oriented. As hard as it is to submit, it's a much more difficult notion to love as Christ loved the church. And so it is wicked to exploit God-given responsibility, all right, to justify using one's wife as a lust for power. And you see that oftentimes with men who like to control everything in their home. They control their wives. They seek to control every movement of their children. Third, headship is not the power of, of a superior over an inferior. Now, this is an important principle for, for any kind of um, vainglory that you might see between ethnicities or sexes, genders, or, or classes or different demographics within a church. When God created man and woman as his image bearers, he established that we are all equal in essence. We are all equal in dignity and worth before God. No matter what your gender is, no matter what your ethnicity is. And a husband is not superior to his wife. Fourth, headship is never to be identified with the issuing of commands nor does it mean that a husband is to make every decision in the home. Uh, my wife is, would, would quickly tell you, and her parents are here, they would quickly tell you, there are things my wife knows that I don't know. She is smart in things that I'm dumb in. And so I delegate those things to her. That's not me abdicating headship in the home. It's I know what her gifts are, and I let her run in her gifts. So given our text, what is the essence of male headship? First, headship is a responsibility, not a right. It's not something you deserve. It is a responsibility. John Stott in his commentary says, Too often Christians try to summarize male headship by simply saying that the husband has the last word in decision-making such phraseology could mean that even if the wife hates the idea of moving to a distant town, doesn't want a particular home, or disagrees with a husband's method of disciplining children, or believes an investment is unwise, the husband should get his wishes. That's a false notion of headship. I tell couples, and we abide by this principle in our home, if we have a decision to make and my wife is not comfortable with it, we don't, we don't go there. Now, if a decision has to be made, you have to make a decision. But uh, I want her on the same page. There's a famous missionary. I won't name him here, but he's famous for international missions. But his wife was not comfortable going overseas. And so he took her overseas anyway, and she went start raving mad. 
Now, God used him mightily overseas, but I've always wondered, what if he just delayed it a year? Maybe God would have changed his wife's heart and she would have thrived overseas, but he did not delay, he didn't wait, and it caused devastation for his wife. So headship does not mean that you always get your way. He says, far from encouraging a husband to exercise his authority for personal privilege, the Bible takes care to direct a Christian man to use his authority for the benefit of his spouse and his family. Second, headship is scripturally boundaried. As I said last week, uh, a wife is to submit to her husband in everything except there is the Acts 529 principle. You obey God rather than man. If your husband calls you to do something that is unbiblical, that is sinful, that is wicked, that goes against your conscience, you don't submit to that. And a man is not to call you to do something that is not boundaried by the word of God. So let me just give you this example. If your husband says, I don't want you to go to church, this is the one day of the week, that we can have together, you don't submit to that. You go to church. Because Scripture says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. It is unbiblical not to go to church. And so a husband who calls his wife to do something like that is out of bounds. That does not fall underneath the realm of his headship. Third, Headship does entail the responsibility to make a final decision when agreement cannot be reached. Now, having said that, I would say sometimes you may defer that final decision to your wife if she is more well-versed or educated or gifted in a particular area of decision-making. Fourth, headship means honoring one's wife. In fact, Peter says, if we don't honor our wives, 1 Peter 3, our prayers could be hindered. Maybe uh, the reason you haven't seen God answering your prayers is that you haven't honored your wife, as Peter calls us to honor our wives. Fifth, headship means loving and caring for our wives as we love and care for ourselves. We've already seen that because married couples are, are one If either one in the marriage damages, demoralizes, or degrades the other, neither will be completely whole. It's like if you you put a hole in a a ball, um, on one side of the ball. Um, You just put a hole in one side of the basketball, air comes out of that side of the basketball, guess what, you're not going to be able to bounce that ball. If you demoralize your wife, you you degrade her, it's going to have a devastating effect, not just on her, but on you. The man who thinks he's going to be fine regardless of his wife's emotional or spiritual health is deluded, delusional. He damages himself. Seventh, headship means loving and caring for one's wife as much as Christ loves and cares for us. Again, John Stott, Christ loved the church, gave himself for her in order to cleanse her, sanctify her, and ultimately present her to himself in full splendor without any defect. 
The Christian husband is to have a similar concern. He longs to see her growing towards that glory, that perfection of fulfilled personhood, which will be the final destiny of all those whom Christ redeems. To this end, Christ gave himself. To this end, too, the husband gives himself in love. That's the first thing. Your happiness is not the first thing. But if you see this going on, happiness will be the byproduct. And so unbiblical headship is a form of robbery. It robs your wife. It robs you. And it eclipses the glory of God in Christ. And then finally, headship means taking the lead in reconciliation. You thought women... Wives, that submission was difficult. Well, this is one of the most difficult. Taking the lead in reconciliation. It falls on the man. John Piper says, I don't mean that wives should never say they're sorry, but in the relation between Christ and his church, who took the initiative to make all things new? Who left the comfort and security of his throne of justice to put mercy to work? Who came back to Peter first after three denials? Who has returned to you again and again, forgiving you and offering his fellowship afresh? So husbands, your headship means go ahead, take the lead. It does not matter if it's her fault. Usually it isn't. Um, That didn't stop Christ. Who will break the icy silence first? She might beat you to it. That's okay. But woe to you if you think that since it's her fault, she's obliged to say the first reconciling word. Headship is the hardest, most humbling work in the world. And if I could say, taking us back to Ephesians 5.18, Ephesians 5.15, it is the walk of wisdom. It is the spirit-filled life. In fact, a wife cannot submit to her husband as unto the Lord unless she's filled with the Spirit. It's the supernatural life. Everything else is a parody of the Christian life. And a husband cannot love his wife as Christ loved the church unless he is filled with the Spirit. It's not natural. In fact, it's impossible. But the Spirit who has sealed you is omnipotent. He's the third person of the Trinity. And he grants you all the manna, all the resources in Jesus to obey Paul's admonition to us this morning. And do you see that what God is doing, he's summing up all things in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. And marriage displays that mystery like no other human relationship. There is so much at stake. Let's pray and let's ask the Lord to do a work in our marriages. Even the best of marriages in here. We need our husbands to step up. We need our husbands to be filled with the Spirit. Because the health of our homes largely falls on you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, we thank you that Jesus loved us so much. He gave himself up for us. Of course, we know that his love for us is just a reflection, a perfect reflection of your love for us.
in that most famous of verses, you so loved us, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son that those who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul tells us that is the calling of the marriage to display that. No wife, Lord, flourishes unless her husband seeks to love as Christ loved us. So, Lord, right now I want to pray for every Christian marriage in this body of believers. Father, we know that Paul tells us just before this passage to walk in wisdom, to redeem the time, to make the most of our every opportunity, to not be foolish. He also calls us to be filled with the Spirit. Lord, we know that it's the Spirit who gives us the resources to obey this highest of all passages on marriage. So I'm praying right now that the word of Christ would richly indwell every believer here, that we'd open up our Bibles in the home. As Paul tells us, that sanctification comes through the word of God. Jesus prayed that the night before he died. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So I'm praying, Lord, that every Christian marriage in this, in this place this morning would be compelled to open up their Bibles in their homes. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit as we let the word of Christ richly indwell us. And we pray, Lord, that our wives would devote themselves to submit themselves to their husbands as unto the Lord. And I pray, Lord, that our husbands repent of thinking that marriage is about them and their happiness and their personal fulfillment. And I pray that they would seek to love their wives as Christ loved the church, that we might present our wives as holy and without blemish, without spot or wrinkle. Forgive us for falling short. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. But we now by, pray by your spirit that you would, you would energize us, that you would provoke us, strengthen us to a new commitment, recognizing that the first thing of marriage is about revealing the mystery that Christ has achieved salvation for his bride. And Father, if there's any here today, maybe husbands who've never trusted in Jesus, wives who've never trusted in Jesus, I pray that they would be compelled by your spirit, convicted by your spirit to turn from their sins and to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. That they could see, that they could behold, that you're holy and that they deserve judgment. That you have made provision for judgment in your son. And that they would flee to Christ in repentance and faith. And I pray that upon their conversion, Lord, a new commitment could be fostered in their marriages. To serve as a sign of the mystery. The relationship with Christ and his bride. We ask these things in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our 
bridegroom. Amen.